Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a pleasure to be here. I love y'all and I've missed the Sunday gathering. It's not like I haven't been here, but you know what I mean? They just keep on getting better and better nonetheless. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to join me in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 22. So it's a, it's a really big piece of scripture. And while you open or load your Bibles, um, and I, I just want to give you kind of two things. Number one, uh, we're going to be closing out our series in 2 Timothy this morning. And number two, next week we're going to be starting a new sermon series. Uh, it's a five-week sermon series. We're calling it Liturgy. Uh, you may have heard that term or heard that word used uh, in the context of a church setting. Uh, that word means the work of the people. And so we're going to look at the significance behind the Sunday morning gathering, what we are doing here this morning together. We're going to look at the significance behind the Sunday morning gathering and how the Sunday morning gathering is actually formative for the Christian life. And so we could look at tons of other things. We've looked at practical applications in the Christian life in the past. This time we're going to uh, focus uh, five weeks specifically in the context of Sunday morning. So I'm really pumped about that series. Uh, again, that starts next week and we'll be there for about five weeks. With that being said, uh, because we have such a large piece of scripture this morning, I, if you're cool, I just want to dive in. Uh, we're closing, as I mentioned, this series in 2 Timothy. We've titled it Faithful Grit, in case you haven't seen this before. Uh, hopefully today you'll get a little bit more of an idea as to why we chose to title this uh, Faithful Grit. Um, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we have seen um, the Apostle Paul write this final letter to uh, a young pastor named Timothy. And throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has used several metaphors for the Christian life. In the second chapter, Paul uses uh, the examples and trainings of athletes, the enlistment of soldiers, and the patience of a farmer in an effort to communicate and illustrate faithfulness. Today, as we close this series, the Apostle Paul is going to use this similar imagery once more to communicate the faithfulness of Jesus and to press the call of faithfulness toward those who follow Jesus. When an athlete is inducted into the Hall of Fame or a soldier is awarded a medal such as the Congressional Medal of Honor, it is not only because they were faithful in their profession or duty, but because they lived it out over a long period of time or exercised faithfulness in the most extreme of conditions. As Christians, this morning God, through Paul, is calling you and I to a life of faithfulness. In our time, I would like us to examine four areas of this text. The first is going to be the call to faithfulness. In other words, what does it simply mean to be faithful? The second area that I'd like to examine is the example of faithfulness, and that is, what does it look like to live a life of faithfulness? 
The third is going to be the life realities of faithfulness. In other words, what are some of the things that you and I are simply going to experience and encounter in the midst of a life of faithfulness or pursuing a life of faithfulness? And finally, we're going to look at the Lord Jesus' faithfulness. You see, the final words recorded by the Apostle Paul are a reminder and an encouragement that the grace of the Lord Jesus is what and will sustain us. Often the meaning and work of the word faithfulness can simply be summarized and often is summarized as doing good. It can even be summarized in doing what you are supposed to be doing. It can mean trustworthy. It could mean walking in wisdom or doing what you can with what you have consistently. And these definitions are not incorrect. In fact, these definitions are good and true. However, they are incomplete because they miss the great work of the gospel for the Christian. And so here's my main idea for today. If you hear nothing else, I hope you hear the main idea. Here's the main idea. Faithfulness is not simply an act of good character, but conformity to Christ. Say that one more time. Faithfulness is not simply an act of good character, but conformity to Christ. If the goal of the Christian life is to be more like Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 8, to be conformed into his image, then the call, the practicality, the life realities of faithfulness in our life are going to be the determining factor. So, With that being said, I'd like to read all this scripture and then I'll pray and we'll dig into the text. Beginning in verse five, this is what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord's will, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the house of Omniferous. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in an effort to not only experience the work of Christ for us, but to see the truth of Christ revealed to us through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would sanctify us this morning, that our hearts, minds, and will would be stirred, challenged, and convicted to be more like Jesus and not simply a better version of ourselves. Jesus, we ask that you would meet us where we are with your grace to find encouragement, to walk in repentance, and to persevere. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all ready? We're going to park in verse 5 for just a moment because it's incredibly important. Paul begins this section with language that we have become familiar with, the language of contrast. Paul begins verse 5 by writing, as for you. That is, he is providing us a contrast between who Timothy is supposed to be compared to those who want to do what they want to do. If you remember, last week we looked at the model of discipleship, the material that is the sufficiency of Scripture, and finally the method that is going to carry these out is the proclamation of the gospel. Paul later goes on to say that there will be those who will turn away from sound teaching because of their itching ears. They want their itching ears to be scratched by teachers who are going to teach what they want to hear. And so Paul begins verse 5 in this transition by saying, as for you, in other words, that's them, but you are to be different. You have been called to holiness. You are holy because God is holy. God has saved you, therefore he has set you apart. And so the same encouragement that Paul gives Timothy, he provides to you and I, particularly in a culture that is very polarized. He says, as for you. He provides him with a call to faithfulness. This short verse explains to us what it means to be faithful. And let me begin by saying that answering the call to faithfulness takes grit. It takes grit because it's simple, but it is not easy. Yet it is ever rewarding. And so in verse 5, let's look at what Paul says in light of the call to faithfulness. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to be free from drunkenness, and that is that you should not have clouded judgment or a distorted view of what is going on, that you are actually looking at what's in front of you or that you are looking at the culture before you through the lens of the gospel. And so Paul says, make sure that you are sober-minded. When are we supposed to be sober-minded? Always. 
In the same chapter, in verse 2 that we looked at last week, Paul says, preach the gospel in season and out of season. We concluded, because I don't watch sports, that that means there is no off-season. Likewise, in verse 5, it's, a, it's an iteration of the same thing. Always be sober-minded. That to answer the call of faithfulness means that we are to have sound judgment. That sound judgment is provided for us as we examine our hearts and mind through God's word. There is no off-season. Paul continues, Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. You see, enduring hardship or enduring suffering is difficult. It's difficult for the Christian because it's discouraging. Like, let's not cover it up. It can and is discouraging. discouraging. Yet, the Christian life will encounter suffering and hardship. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. The Apostle Peter opens chapter four of his epistle by saying, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. Suffering or hardship for the Christian is formative. Remember, it is formative because answering the call to faithfulness is not simply an act of good character or good morals. It is conformity to the image of Jesus. Paul reveals what that looks like, what enduring hardship and what it looks like to grow in his maturity. He models this even as he awaits his execution. If you fast forward to verse 16, actually even before verse 16, verse 14, he writes of Alexander the coppersmith who did him great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. In verse 16, he talks about how no one came to his defense as he stood trial by himself. And he says, may it not be charged against those who deserted him. In the midst of standing before trial, awaiting execution, facing persecution, Paul does not talk smack about those who, who wronged him. Paul does not complain about the hardship that he faces. Instead, Paul denies himself. Paul gives that over to the Lord. We're going to see why in a moment. But Paul endures suffering because the gospel message has been formative for the apostle. Throughout the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul urges Timothy to avoid responding to hardship certain ways. And if we're honest, all of us, more than likely including Timothy, fall short in these areas. Throughout the letter, Paul tells Timothy to avoid uh, responding to hardship by being bitter. He brings about this in, in, in chapter one. You see, what tends to happen, and I'm speaking specifically to the church, to Christians, what tends to happen is that when we become embittered, it isn't because we're not doing a good job of letting God and letting go. It is because we have not repented of our bitterness. And you know you are bitter when you are replaying the same thing over and over and over again in your head. And there is a lack of fruit as we walk in faithfulness. So when hardship comes your way, 
It is difficult to endure. It is difficult to persevere because we're just too bitter. Elsewhere, Paul says, avoid responding to hardship by quitting. When times get really tough, Christians want to bail. I thought I was supposed to be living my best life now. The Apostle Peter says, do not be surprised when suffering comes your way. We will suffer as Jesus suffered. Part of the reason we uh, quit when suffering comes our way is because we have a perhaps misunderstanding or immature understanding of Scripture and a misunderstanding of what Jesus has actually done for us. Jesus saved me or he died for me so that I would be happy. No. It was so that you would be reconciled to the Father. Jesus saved me so that my life would be easier. We can look at the life of Jesus and see that it was not difficult or that it was difficult. That he was persecuted, he was hated. He was murdered. Jesus saved me so that I could get married. No, he didn't. It's so that you would be reconciled to the Father. So Christian, don't quit. Oftentimes, I think Christians quit because we have an immature understanding of the gospel. The third one is, avoid responding to hardship by responding poorly. Again, Paul demonstrates this well in verses 16 and 17. People deserted him. People did great harm to him. And he says, hey, I'm going to hand them over to the Lord. I'm not going to count that against him. Why doesn't he count that against him? Because on his mind is Jesus and people meeting Jesus even as he awaits execution. Sometimes Christians respond poorly when it comes to hardship by just saying foolish things. You can surf Facebook and see how that comes out. The Christian life involves hardship and faithfulness is what keeps us moving forward. So don't quit. Paul continues, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Now, some Christians, even y'all, might already check out like, oh, that's not my gift. My gift is not evangelism. Not the agas, bro. Evangelism is work, and it's that simple. Evangelism is work. And while there are many who possess the gift of evangelism, that is that it might come natural to them or they're just really good at man, stepping out and talking to strangers about, uh, about the good news of Jesus, it does not mean or suggest that the rest of us do not evangelize. Therefore, evangelism is to be a work done and developed by every Christian. 
In fact, I believe that the reason the church does not evangelize more or well is because evangelism consists of work. That is a skill that we need to develop as we put ourselves out there, as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus. That's work. And if we're honest, we just don't like that. And the other thing is because of God's word. In other words, we actually don't delight in God's word. And it's not just because, oh, this is what God tells us to do, go and make disciples. It's not just because of that. It is simple and practical. We don't delight in God's word. God's word is formative for us, therefore it pours out of us as we talk to those who don't know Jesus, that might mean our family, that might mean our neighbors, those are our coworkers, whoever. Each one of us is an evangelist. The question is whether or not we proclaim Jesus. So the call to faithfulness, simple, but not easy. Be sober-minded, when? Always. Endure hardship, do the work. You might want to underline that one and circle that word. Work of evangelism. And then he concludes that the call to faithfulness means fulfilling your ministry. Paul concludes this by using the word fulfill. The word fulfill here means to finish faithfully all that God has given or entrusted to Timothy. And the same is said for us. The call to faithfulness involves fulfilling your ministry. You don't fulfill my ministry. You fulfill your ministry. You fulfill the ministry, that you complete the assignment that you have been given, not the one that was given to your friend or to your neighbor. That means that you love your church, you love your wife or your husband or your neighbor. You fulfill the ministry that you have been given. He tells them, especially with the word your, he makes it personal. This is the assignment that you have been given. Elsewhere in Joshua, God tells Joshua, he says, hey, make sure that you are grounded in my word, that you are meditating on it day and night. Don't look to the left, don't look to the right, and you will be successful wherever you go. Elsewhere in Psalms, in the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 1, the psalmist says that he delights in God's word day and night and that he wants to be like a tree that is planted near a stream of water so that in everything he does, he prospers. Don't look to the left or to the right. Why don't we fulfill our ministry? Because we're too busy looking to the left or to the right. What are you going to do for me? What is the church going to do for me? How are we going to do things for me? It is your ministry. We've talked a great deal about discipleship, particularly in the context of family discipleship over the course of this series. That's an example of parents, you fulfilling your ministry. I don't fulfill your ministry. God's word is sufficient, what Paul said last week, so that you would fulfill your ministry. The call to faithfulness is simple, but not easy. And Paul knows that like us, 
Timothy is shy. He might be an introvert, and he's timid. And so, to keep it going, Paul provides him with the example of faithfulness. In other words, Paul now goes on to say, this is what it looks like. This is what faithfulness looks like. In verses six through eight, Paul provides us with four examples of faithfulness that by God's grace, he has walked in. And what is important for you and I to know is that faithfulness does not mean sinless, okay? Faithfulness does not mean that you are sinless. In fact, part of faithfulness for the Christian involves repentance. The reformer Martin Luther once said, when the Lord called us to repentance, he called us to repent for a lifetime. Therefore, while the apostle Paul is providing Timothy with an example of faithfulness, it is not without the act of repentance over the course of his life. Additionally, in these verses, Paul is reflecting on what he has done by the power of God's grace because tragically he knows that his end is near. He uses the imagery of sacrifice and a ship setting sail. In verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The word departure alludes to the imagery of a ship setting sail, that the ropes are off and it's going on to its next destination. Paul has in mind that his next destination is being in the presence of the Lord. The following list isn't simply a list of faithfulness. What Paul tells Timothy Let me say it this way. The message that Paul has for Timothy in this section is simple. As you finish, finish while worshiping. Finish while worshiping. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. What does that mean? To fight the good fight means that Paul has contended. Not only has he defended the gospel, he has contended for the gospel. That is, when opposition came his way, he stood firm and pushed back. He didn't simply ignore it. He didn't simply unfriend people, right? He didn't simply make his account private. He stepped into it and pushed back the opposition of the gospel, toward the gospel. There's this, uh, there's this movie. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces of it, so I'm never the person to talk to about movies. But there's this movie called The Book of Eli. And if you've seen it, cool. If you haven't, whatever. Anyway, Denzel Washington comes out in it. And it's this like post-apocalyptic era. And he has an Oakley backpack. And in that backpack, he has like the last surviving Bible. And he's been given this mission, right? He's been given this mission to head west. And later on in the movie, you find out that the goal of him heading west was to go to a printing press so that they would print more Bibles and more people would have access to the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. As he is heading west, he encounters opposition. Not just people that he needs to defend himself against, but people who directly oppose the teaching of the Bible and want to use it for their own gain. 
And so in the movie, he has like all these sword fights and firefights, defending and contending, we could say it that way. He contends for the gospel. In other words, instead of walking away, going another route, he actually engages the opposition so that he can keep moving forward with the mission that God has called him to, proclaiming the gospel to all who would listen. Along the way, he even makes a disciple. That's what it means to contend. Again, it is not simply defending it and, okay, agree to disagree. No, it is when there is opposition that we actually press into it. The Apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I think that's a really beautiful picture of faithfulness. Francis Schaeffer says this of faithfulness. It is a long obedience in the same direction. I have kept the faith. That is that Paul has guarded the gospel deposit that was entrusted to him. And then he concludes, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. What is in front of Paul isn't retirement. What is in front of Paul isn't, uh, hey, I've done my service. What, what is in front of Paul isn't vacation. What is in front of Paul is the presence, the eternal presence of Christ. And even in this, once again, Paul has two things on his mind. Jesus being in the eternal presence of Jesus and people. Because he concludes, which will award me on the day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul isn't just saying like, hey man, I'm, I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness because I'm Paul. I've wrote a third of the New Testament. No, Paul's saying, I'm no one special. I just belong to the Lord. And anyone else who belongs to the Lord will receive the crown of righteousness. Therefore, fight the good fight. Keep running the race. Keep guarding the faith. And you too will receive this. Keep your mind and your eyes fixed upon the glory of Jesus. In this section of six through eight, the apostle Paul is essentially handing the torch over to Timothy to continue to preach and herald the gospel, to answer the call to faithfulness, to be a disciple who makes disciples. In chapter one, we talked a great deal about family discipleship. In chapter two, we talked about the significance of making disciples. In chapter three, we looked at the importance of maturing as disciples. And now in chapter four, Paul presses once again that we are to make disciples. How does Paul make disciples? He invested in the next generation. He invested in Timothy. Church, listen, if we do not answer the call to faithfulness and if we do not invest in the next generation, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. The pages of Scripture reveal that. Go visit Judges 2. After the death of Joshua, the one who uh, took over after Moses died. God entrusted him with a mission. In Judges chapter 2, guys familiar, right? All y'all read Judges, right? Anyway, in Judges 2, Joshua dies, 
And then what's said after his death? And there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. This is Joshua who, who, who fought all the battles, spilled all the blood, who everybody on their kitchen uh, wall, right? It's that one famous uh, scripture verse that says, as for me and my house, we will worship, what? What does it say? <laughs> yeah, because y'all have it, right? Now, that's the guy, that, that's the guy who, who says that in Joshua, I think it's Joshua 9, and then we go to Judges and he dies and an entire generation did not know the Lord that rose after him. If we don't take the responsibility of discipleship seriously, in this generation, the gospel will be assumed. It's already assumed by many Christians that just because we have clever biographies on our social media or just because we have Philippians 4.13 on our Facebook page, we assume that we know the gospel. And when we assume the gospel, the next generation loses it. If we do not answer the call to faithfulness, nothing will happen. And so Paul is encouraging him and riling him up. And as, and as inspirational as, as the example of faithfulness is, it is not without some life realities, particularly in the area of friendships. I want to focus on, on verse, verses 9 through 21 but I'm going to look primarily at verses 9 through 18. I don't mean to go very fast, but you'll see why. In this section, Paul goes on to list nine people in his final instructions to young Timothy. In part, Paul is providing Timothy with some heads up, some encouragement. But at the same time, I think Paul is also revealing the pain that is in his heart. Answering the call to faithfulness, yes, it takes grit. It takes grit because some of the realities that will for certain come your way, just like it did to Paul, will be discouraging. However, even in the midst of these realities, Paul stands firm in the Lord Jesus talk about that in a little bit. So let's walk through these briefly to find encouragement because I believe to one degree or another, this is a section that we can find more relatable and encouraging than we think. Oftentimes when we read, especially Paul's letters and we come to the conclusions, he's just giving a bunch of names and we're asking and thinking, what, is this, what does that matter to me? I don't know any of these people who have Greek names. And so we're going to walk through these. I'm going to read this section once more and then I'm just going to start to unpack it. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. I love that because he's like, man, I, I want my books. I want to keep studying. Even as he faces execution, he wants the word of God with him. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. 
But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. We'll tackle verses 19 and 21 in a bit. In this section of verses 9 through 28, Paul gives us some of the realities, hard realities, of some of the friendships that we're going to experience. He doesn't categorize it this way. I just wanted to be cool. And so I've categorized it into three sections. The first one is going to be desertion. That's not desert, but desertion, right? They left him. The second one is going to be dependence. And the third one is going to be, I think the notes say dispatch, but I like the word deployment better because that sounds cool. So we're going to use that word. Desertion, dependence, and deployment. When it comes to the first one, when it comes to desertion, one of the most hurtful realities of faithfulness, of answering the call to faithfulness, being sober-minded, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, right? Um, fulfilling your ministry, one of the most hurtful realities is that some people, some friends, will walk away. They're going to start off really strong, and then they will walk away. Others from day one will oppose the gospel that you preach, the life that you live, and the God that you serve, which means you will be rejected. Paul lists two people in this section. The first one is an individual named Demas. Demas is mentioned twice in scripture. He's mentioned in Colossians 4 and Philemon 24. And each time he is referred to as a faithful co-worker to the apostle. He was there with Paul on several of his missionary journeys as he planted churches. And he served alongside Paul. And here we come to 2 Timothy, which is more than likely Paul's final written letter. And he says, Demas deserted me. Now, the word desert here uh, that, he, that he left him doesn't just mean that things got hard and, and, and Demas bailed on him and he wanted to go home or he wanted to go to another church. That's not what happened. In this section, what Paul says is the reason he deserted me is because he loved the world more. When Paul uses this word deserted, he is not just saying again that he bailed on him. He means to say that at one of the most crucial, vulnerable, and difficult times that I was facing, he left. And he tells us why, because this is all we know. He doesn't, he doesn't unpack what else it means, which is a good thing, I think, and I'll explain why in a bit. He says that he was in love with this present world. Two weeks ago, we looked at 2 Timothy 3, where Paul tells Timothy, and he begins to use that language, as for you, continue to be faithful. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of greed, lovers of pleasure. Now, what was most alarming about that section? That Paul is talking about people from within the church. Right? And so that's what Paul is saying regarding Demas that he left him at a great time of difficulty because he was more in love with the present world than he was in love with the person and work of Christ. 
The second person that he mentions is Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith, or the name Alexander, is mentioned a couple more times in the New Testament, but many theologians are not sure if it's the same Alexander. Nevertheless, if we just take what is uh, given to us in 2 Timothy, what we know of this Alexander is that he opposed Jesus, he opposed the message of the gospel, and he opposed Paul. Many believe that this Alexander is the one that got Paul in prison, to which now he awaits his execution. So you're going to have an encounter, the realities of people who are going to start strong and sadly, they're going to walk away. You're also going to be presented with people who will oppose you from day one. Many of you who, uh, when you became a Christian, lost friendships because they opposed Jesus, the gospel, and now you. The second category that we see Paul give us is that of dependence, that one of the most encouraging realities of faithfulness is the reliable friendships that you will develop along the way. And he gives technically two, I'm going to give you three people. The first one is Luke. This is the person who wrote the gospel according to Luke and Acts. Paul says, Luke is with me, even though Paul is lonely. Luke is there with him. Luke is that friend that you want who's just going to be there in really tough times. Maybe Luke was the kind of guy that Paul could just loosen himself around and just, be, just share and put all of his cards on the table. And Luke maybe was just a good listener. I mean, the gospel of Luke is basically a documentary, so he did a good job of listening, Right? The second one that he mentions is Mark. This one I thought was really cool. He says, bring Mark. He's going to be useful to me in ministry. Now, when we hear Mark, we're like, right, Mark, one of the disciples. He wrote the gospel according to Mark. Absolutely. But here's what's so interesting about Mark. Whereas Demas started off strong and then walked away, Mark was that guy that wasn't reliable and was then restored. Paul says of Demas that Demas deserted him. Like that's present tense. That's as he's writing to Timothy. If you visit Acts 18, at one point, Mark goes on a missionary journey with Paul. And then Mark bails. He goes home. And then later on, Barnabas and Paul are hanging and Barnabas says, hey, give me Mark. And Paul says, that guy's a deserter. Forget that guy. The same thing that he just said to Demas. And then at some point, Mark links up with Peter. And much like uh, Timothy was Paul's spiritual son, Peter takes Mark under his wing. And now we see Paul write of Mark. He says, hey, bring Mark. He's reliable to me. At some point, Mark snapped out of it. And uh, I was going to use another language, but Mark snaps out of it, right? And he is restored, not just in ministry, but in faithfulness, in friendship. This is, yes, the same Mark that the Holy Spirit used to write the gospel according to Mark. Do you know how, how humble Mark is? When you read the gospel according to Mark, 
See if you remember, there's this one section as Jesus is being arrested. As Jesus is being arrested, the Roman guard goes to arrest some of the disciples. And in the Gospel of Mark, it is recorded that one of the Roman guards grabs a disciple and the disciple takes off his, his robe and he runs away naked. That was Mark. And he writes that, he puts that in his own account. I'm the one who wasn't just Peter. I deserted Jesus too. And here we see Mark restored, not just to ministry, but in friendship. The third person is just Timothy, the one who he's writing to. He misses Timothy. He tells him in chapter one, I long to see you. He begins this section by telling Timothy, do your best to come see me soon. It wasn't just the kind of friendship that he appreciated. He saw him as his spiritual son, a long to see you. In chapter one, he says, you bring me great joy when I see you. The third section, what we called deployment or dispatched, one of the most bittersweet realities of faithfulness is that God will call others away to gospel mission. <clears throat> and it is, it's just a bittersweet moment where you hate to see people go Man, they've been called elsewhere, whether it's to plant a church, proclaim the gospel, new life season, and they're moving to a different city. He says this. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Titus was the one that Paul sent to a little island called Crete. More than likely, his, uh, his, his, his responsibilities at Crete were already fulfilled, and now he's being sent elsewhere. And he says, Luke alone is with me. He continues, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. He sends Tychicus to Ephesus more than likely to replace Timothy so that Timothy can come visit Paul. So Paul's by himself. He goes on to mention in verses 19 through 21, Prisca and Aquila, Claudia, Trophimus, and, and these are old faithful friends that he is uh, sending their greetings to, people that he has done ministry with and are continuing to do ministry. Prisca and Aquila are mentioned in Romans and Acts and 1 Corinthians. They planted a church in their home. Paul was there with them. This is the only time we see Claudia mentioned. Pudens and Linus, these are individuals who were, uh, and Claudia, these are individuals who did gospel ministry with Paul and are continuing to do uh, gospel ministry with Paul, or excuse me, uh, as Paul is in prison. Trophimus was with Paul when he first started proclaiming the gospel. All of these individuals were people that ran with, hung out with, uh, ate with, laughed with, talked with Paul, and now they are being called to do different things. Answering the call to faithfulness surely has its difficulties in terms of being sober-minded and enduring suffering and... and um, fulfilling your ministry, doing the work of an evangelist. There are examples that the Apostle Paul provides, but then there are these realities that he just puts on the table. The realities of the call or the walk of faithfulness is that some friends are going to walk away, and that's going to be very grieving. And Paul is just sharing his heart, so he's not telling you to toughen it out. He puts it on the table. You're going to have friends that are going to be really dependable, and then you're going to have friends that are just going to be called to different things. And Paul was lonely and he was hurt. But again, he didn't write these people off. 
Instead, he hands them over to the Lord and he denies himself. Why? He tells us this in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message of the gospel, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Why doesn't he write them off? Why doesn't he tell Timothy? Why doesn't he talk smack about them in this personal DM? He doesn't do that. He gives Timothy a heads up. Hey, watch out for these people. They proclaim a different gospel. They oppose the message. Watch out for them. But he doesn't write them off. Instead, he says, even as I await trial, my goal, the things that I have on my mind are Jesus and people meeting Jesus. It is a slight echo of what Peter writes in his epistle. This is 1 Peter 2, beginning of verse 22. It's talking about Jesus where he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Rather than writing them off, rather than saying some things about all of these individuals, particularly the ones who deserted him, Paul's goal is that the message of the gospel would be proclaimed. I want to be like that. I want to suffer like that. So that when hardship comes, the thing I want to Proclaim the most is Christ and him crucified. Not my opinions of people. That doesn't mean that we as Christians should not contend. You have to contend. You must contend. But when the time comes, I want to respond like Jesus. I want to respond like the Apostle Paul You see, knowing and standing in the confidence of Christ's redeeming work, Paul avoided responding to hardship poorly by making sure that the gospel was proclaimed. While we're going to experience some of the painful realities of desertion and dependence and deployment, it's easy to think only of those things as them happening to us without evaluating our own hearts. And so here's the question, what kind of a friend are you and what kind of a friend have you been? Think back from March to now. What kind of a friend are you? What kind of a friend have you been? Whereas Paul denies himself for the sake of the gospel, have you become bitter? Whereas Paul denies himself for the sake of the gospel, have you become hostile? Whereas Paul denies himself for the sake of the gospel, have you become indifferent? Indifference is a choice. And it is opposing Jesus. And so as we conclude and look at verse 22, the final words of the Apostle Paul are recorded. And the final words of the Apostle Paul help us to answer the question of how. 
How do we answer the call to faithfulness? How can we be examples of faithfulness? How can we be sustained through the life realities of faithfulness? Paul tells us that it is by the Lord's grace. This morning, we need to realize that the only way we're going to be able to walk in faithfulness, to conform into the image of Christ is first by experiencing that the Lord Jesus is faithful to us. And because he is faithful to us, we are assured of his grace for us. Paul, even near death, is fully convinced that the gospel, the redeeming work of Christ, is what saves sinners and preaches it until the end. And it's not the gospel of niceness, and it's not the gospel of a political correctness, but that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. And that Savior is Jesus who entered into our world, into our mess, and lived a sinless life and took ownership of our sin by dying our death and then offers us the gift of salvation. That is the Savior that we need. That is the Savior that we proclaim. If you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus is calling you to faithfulness, but not by your strength, but by his spirit and grace. The call to faithfulness is, isn't simply being a good person, but conforming to the image of Jesus. Repent of any sin that you're holding back, Christian. Submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Walk in faithfulness. I promise that you will not be alone Paul says it and experienced it himself. The word of God says so. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus invites you to come to know him today because he is faithful. He is a gracious God. He pardons any and all who turn to him in repentance and faith. Today you can experience the gift of grace as you turn to him in repentance. Faithfulness, the call to faithfulness is not simply an act of good character, but conformity to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you say that your word is like a double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow and discerns the intentions of our heart. You also tell us that your word and grace are sufficient for us. Lord, would you forgive us for believing that your word and grace aren't sufficient? Would you forgive us for our lack of faithfulness? Would you forgive us for our folly 
Lord, you have been and are faithful to us. You have called us with an everlasting love. You demonstrated that love by sending your son Jesus to live and die for sinners like us. Therefore, Jesus, would you meet us where we are with your grace? Would you meet us where we are with your grace, not only to receive forgiveness, but to conform into your image? May the heart of faithfulness for us, may the heart of faithfulness for us be to display your glory and grace in season and out of season to your glory, for your kingdom, and for our good.